This is Car Expert. Now they're bringing in a two-seat, half-roll-caged, crazy turbo, manual-only hot version designed for racetracks. Whatever Toyota's doing at the moment, just keep doing more of it, guys. So we may have a wide range of powertrains for the Sorento in Australia, but we don't have all of them. We don't necessarily have what would be one of the better ones, in my view. You can definitely get this car equipped as maybe you would have expected a Passat five or ten years ago, and that is quite unique in the segment. Mike Costello, hello. Hello, Mandy. And hello, William Stopford. Hey, Mandy, how are you? Very good, thank you. Actually, I'm excited because, um, Mike, you've been putting together an EV calendar and, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, so many EVs are coming. Yeah, we hear it all the time, don't we, that there's just not enough choice when it comes to electric cars, which might explain why Tesla alone has about, oh, Will, you could probably correct me here, but I think it's about 70% market share in the the battery uh, electric vehicle space. At the moment, there's actually uh, only about 20-odd EVs from from 14 manufacturers available. But based on my calculations and some phone calls that I've been making with various industry people this week, By the end of 2023, there'll be an additional, on top of what's already on sale, 35 electric car models to choose from, from no fewer than 24 car brands. And that's just next year. So we are preparing for an absolute avalanche of new electric cars. And that's everything from cheap Chinese EVs like the BYD Atto 3 and GWM Aura, all the way through to, you know, the new Porsche Macan EV, the Mercedes-Benz EQS SUV, Maserati's first EV the Grecale Folgore. I mean, this is uh, across the spectrum of mainstream and luxury manufacturers. We've got vans in there. We've got SUVs. We've got sedans and coupes. Um, So we're really starting to see now this proliferation of battery electric cars coming into Australia, which supply levels and stock permitting, and that, of course, is always the problem today, we Mm. might actually start to see some serious market penetration of EVs. And rather than being a novelty niche, they might actually start becoming a 10%, 20% part of the market over the next few years. Yeah. Are there any particular ones that you're looking forward to? You know, funnily enough, it's probably not because of the car itself, but the Toyota uh, BZ4X, horrible name, um, (laughs) I'm really looking forward to because of the fact that, look, this is not going to be a big volume car. It's not going to outsell the Tesla Model 3. But Toyota has 20% market share all by itself. It's far and away the biggest car maker. It's entirely synonymous with hybrid cars. Everybody knows everything about Toyota and it's been a bit of a laggard when it comes to EVs quite frankly so I'm very interested to see what it's doing to sort of catch up um, and I'm also really interested in and I sort of touched on them before but some of these cheap Chinese EVs that are coming like the GWM Aura which is a kind of sort of a I guess a mini-esque little cute curvaceous hatchback um, and also that uh, that BYD Atto 3 as well some interesting new manufacturers entering the space and, and hopefully pushing the prices down by putting some healthy competition into the marketplace so looking forward to those i'm actually particularly excited for when they do come uh the kia ev9 and the hyundai ionic 7 Uh, i know we don't have concrete launch timing for them for australia just yet but the idea of you know these hyundai palisade sized suvs with three rows of seating we know how 
different packaging can be for electric vehicles. When you've got the battery in the floor, um, you can stretch out the wheelbase quite a bit. You can really take advantage um, of that packaging um, to make the most spacious possible car for the external footprint. So I'll be very excited to see just how those uh, those two large three-row electric SUVs will be uh, to sit in. Well, speaking of EVs, we're going to be talking about a bit more of them in news now. And we'll start with you, Mike. It looks like we're going to be getting a Fiat 500 EV coming to Australia next year. Yeah, finally. This car's been around in Europe for a little while now. It's, um, In fact, I remember viscerally doing some coverage on it when we first started Car Expert way back in the early parts of 2020. But we do find that vehicles sometimes take a fair while to make it here. Um, the regular Fiat 500, one of the best known little city cars uh, around, has been around seemingly forever. And the all new one is electric only. Um, during the week, Fiat in the UK made a very sort of subtle announcement that they were only going to sell electrified vehicles moving forward, which prompted us to reach out to Fiat Australia and say, hey, what's going on in Australia? Are you going to go down the same road? You don't have any electrified products yet. And they very quietly and very openly just said, oh, yeah, that, that 500 e is coming early next year. And we suddenly wow. went, hey, we didn't know that. Uh, surprising that you didn't make a bigger song and dance about that. But anyway, um, so, yeah, it's going to come, uh, as I said, in the first half of next year. Everybody knows what the Fiat 500 looks like. It's that little jelly bean car. This one's no exception. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, on the design front, inside as well as outside, the company has done a stellar job on this car. Um, it's going to compete with things like the Mini Electric, which is a bit expensive but is also a super cute, urban, funky EV. Um, 180k range on WLTP testing for this one from its fairly small 24 kilowatt hour battery. Um, but you know what? This is an inner city urban car. I don't think people are mm. buying this to drive from Melbourne to Sydney. So I don't think that's a huge issue. The other bonus of having a small battery is, of course, batteries are the most expensive part of an electric car. The smaller the capacity, the cheaper the battery. So that should keep the price down. There is also a bigger option available, a 42 kilowatt hour battery, which is about the size of an Nissan Leafs battery. We don't know specifically what Fiat Australia will opt to bring here. There's also a, uh, an interesting sort of um, non-symmetrical one with two doors on one side and one on the other side, like a, a Hyundai Veloster used to be. There's a soft top one that you can also choose from. We don't know what varieties are going to come to Australia, but rest assured they'll all be very interesting to look at. As I said, much more interesting inside than the outgoing Fiat 500 as well. So something to look forward to for prospective city EV buyers moving forward. What price do you think it needs to be for people to want to buy this Moco? I think it has to start with a four. I think, uh, mm. you know, electric car buyer. I mean, look, to be honest with you, like a base Toyota Yaris now is best part of 30 grand. So there's no such thing as cheap, cheap cars anymore, unless you you maybe buy the Chinese MG3 perhaps. Um, so I think it'll start with a four. But I think if it's in that sort of low $40,000 price band for a base one, they could probably swing it. I mean, we've seen the mini electric priced in the mid 50s, 60 odd grand on the road, and there's a waiting list on them. So people are actually willing to pay. I think the 500 is seen as a premium proposition. Um, the fact that it does come out of Europe and exchange rates aren't particularly favourable, I imagine it probably won't be super cheap. Um, but as we start to see the proliferation in the market of more EVs coming through, competition will increase and prices will theoretically come down. So if it starts at a four, I think it could be the reinvention for the Fiat brand in Australia because, you know, let's be honest, Fiat in Australia has been a bit quiet lately. It's still selling that old 500. Um, a lot of the other products that used to offer the Panda and the Punto 
Toronto and these sorts of things are gone now. It really needs something to kind of kick it into gear, which is ironic since EVs don't have gears. Um, but this, <laughs> this, this, this could be the vehicle to get that done. Yeah, cool. Um, now, I like the opening line of uh, Derek's news story that he wrote. Can the Toyota GR Corolla be any more bonkers? Yes, it can be, Will. It absolutely can. Uh, so they dropped this overnight. I say overnight because we're recording this on a Thursday. Um, so it's called the GR Corolla Marizo edition. I may have mispronounced that. Um, but essentially what it is is a lighter, torqueier two-seat version of the GR Corolla. So they've ripped out the rear seat. Um, power is unchanged, but there's actually 30 newton metres more torque for a total of 400 newton metres. Um, and uh, they've improved rigidity by putting an extra 3.3 metres of structural adhesive to various points of the car. Uh, and they've reduced weight overall by 30 kilograms. So a lot of that has just come down to removing the rear seats, um, which has been replaced with additional body bracing. But you still get all the goodness of the GR Corolla. So a turbocharged 1.6 litre three-cylinder engine, all-wheel drive, you know, 224 kilowatts of power, a six-speed manual transmission. You just can't carry any more than one person in it. It's also the only Corolla with a half-decent boot in the world because the Corolla hatch has got <laughs> the smallest boot and this one where there's no rear seats. There's plenty of room. Um, Maurizio is actually the pseudonym of Akio Toyota himself oh, who is, is a uh, professional race car driver um, yeah. and goes by the, the pseudonym Maurizio. So it's named in his honour. I don't think they're going to call it that in Australia, but I've definitely seen that label thrown onto the car in some markets. Um it is just fabulous that this car is coming to Australia. The Corolla is a bit of a reputation for being one of the most boring cars around. Very reliable and sensible and all that, but not exactly exciting. And now they're bringing in a two-seat, half roll-caged, crazy turbo, manual-only hot version designed for racetracks with giant flared guards and a body kit. And, I mean, what, what isn't to like about that? I mean, whatever Toyota's doing at the moment, just keep doing more of it, guys. Unbelievable. And based on my experience driving that uh, all-wheel drive Yaris GR, this, of course, just being a slightly bigger version, essentially, i got pretty high expectations that this is going to be a, a serious bit of kit. I really want to see the, uh, the illustrious, Chris Atkinson get behind the wheel and give it a proper fang for us. Oh, yes. Shut up and take my money. Uh, <laughs> Moco, just about every powertrain you could possibly think of is uh, will be in the BMW X1 coming here. Yeah, so brand new BMW X1, third generation. The first one was, of course, a sort of weird rear-wheel drive proportioned high-riding hatch. The next one went in the polar opposite direction. One of the first front-drive BMWs, very sensible sort of small SUV. This one, um, I actually really like what BMW is doing with its designs lately. Not everybody does, but I think it's quite a good-looking car. Um, definitely has a lot more presence than the predecessor does too. It's a bit bigger than before, four and a half metres long. So the petrol versions are going to compete with you know all your usual suspects like the mercedes-benz gla and glb and the volvo xc40 and potentially lower level xc60s it kind of straddles uh the segments there um so you've got your sort of basic small petrol engines, but the more interesting one is the iX1. Uh, so it's on the same platform. BMW doesn't necessarily do bespoke EV-only platforms. It has flexible platforms. Um, but the EV one, the iX1, is going to be here early in 2023 at this stage. It's going to take 
on the Mercedes-Benz EQA Volvo XC40 recharge. We don't know if the Audi Q4 uh, e-tron is coming yet. It hasn't been confirmed. Tesla Model Y, all these premium badged electric small SUVs. And the electric iX1 has 230 kilowatts of power and 494 newton meters of torque. So it's not exactly hanging around. It's got a twin motor, two motor uh, system, unlike the bigger iX3, which is rear wheel drive. Um, and I think uh, as a sort of replacement for the i3 as the entry-level BMW electric car, it looks very compelling indeed. Um, so, you know, I'm getting caught up and uh, I probably should mention the S-Drive 18i and S-Drive 20i petrol versions. There are a couple of plug-in hybrids also mentioned that are going to be sold in Europe with up to 90 kilometres of electric-only driving range. Unfortunately, those won't be coming, at least for the time being, because allocation is principally devoted to Europe. Um, I really like BMW's new interiors as well. So it's got a twin-screen kind of curved uh, arrangement there, uh, a 10.25-inch cluster and a 10.7-inch touchscreen all in one. No more iDrive here, just a touchscreen. It's curved. It's very bright. It's brash. The interior has a lot of lovely materials. BMW has really got its act together lately when it comes to making its interiors look contemporary and modern um, and it's running the latest BMW operating system 8 which works fantastically well so more practical more high-tech more electrified uh, looks a whole lot better than the old x1 I think this is going to be an absolute smash hit for the brand what do you reckon will do you dig it I genuinely like the way it looks uh, mm. the current x1 Oh, showing its age a little bit. Not a massive fan of the interior. This seems to really move the game forward. And you're absolutely right, Mike. The presence of a dual motor all-wheel drive setup in the iX1, which has pretty competitive range figures, pretty good power and torque. That's that's really the admirable uh, of BMW. I did find something a little bit interesting. Uh, so I was reading the global release before the uh, local press release dropped. Uh, we are actually missing out on a mild hybrid turbocharged four-cylinder option. So Europe will get a model called the X-Drive 23i. We're actually getting uh, a turbocharged two-liter four-cylinder X-Drive 20i. Um, so no 48-volt mild hybrid system. It's down 10 kilowatts of power. It's down 60 newton meters of torque. So that's a little bit disappointing. And BMW also hasn't confirmed whether it will be eventually bringing the plug-in hybrids here. I mean, obviously, there's much greater demand for those in Europe um, and we're pretty low on the priority list there. But I think BMW's done a good job. And, Mike, I 100% agree with you. I actually genuinely like what BMW has been doing with their design language lately with a small caveat there that I really don't care for the front of the iX. Um, yeah. Every new BMW I've genuinely enjoyed the looks of. And if I haven't enjoyed it at first, it's grown on me to the point where so, I really love the new M3 and M4 and I didn't at first. What's really interesting to me too, and, and I speak as someone who you know owns old BMWs and has always been a big fan of the brand, is BMW interiors are always boring, super ergonomic, super well thought out, really user-friendly, beautifully built, but, but so dull. And that was always just something that you just accepted as being part of the brand. But as BMW's changed the sort of people that it's going after, it's had to make its interiors more exciting. It's taken a leaf out of Audi and Mercedes-Benz's books, and it's now using a lot of contrasting different colours and trims and materials and you know, even the interior tech no longer just works well, but it actually looks really sexy as well. And I think the X1 really sums that up because this is a car that it's not about being the ultimate driving machine. It's about being the ultimate occupant machine, like all small SUVs are. And I think BMW has really taken a leaf from some of its premium competitors' books and, and made the design inside as well as outside really good. So this seems like one of the more resolved BMWs I've seen lately. 
Mm. I think you're you're right about BMW interiors. They do tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side, but I find they they don't age as quickly. Whereas if you look at say Mercedes Benz over the past few decades, they seem to shift from one interior design language to another, and yeah. it definitely ages a lot quicker. I think we all remember like that mid to late 2000s, early 2010s with the very button-heavy angular dashboards. Then you've got the really curvy blobby dashboards. And anyway, we'll talk about another Mercedes in a second that I have opinions about. <laughs> but before we talk about a Mercedes, we have another luxury brand to talk about, and I believe it's one from Absolutely. Japan. Yes, exactly. So the new Lexus RX has been revealed on a new platform and... If you wanted a V6, it is gone. Um, You now have a range of four-cylinder powertrains, but there's some really interesting ones here. Um, So there's a new flagship RX called the RX 500H F Sport Performance. Take a breath after that name. uh, That uses a turbocharged 2.4-liter four-cylinder engine with a hybrid system that includes a high-output rear electric motor. Uh, There's also the RX 350, which instead of having a V6, now has a 2.4-litre turbocharged four-cylinder petrol engine. Uh, There's a four-cylinder hybrid uh, called the RX 350H, and the RX is getting its first plug-in hybrid, which, like the NX plug-in hybrid, will wear the 450H Plus nameplate. So Lexus has revealed the vehicle, um, although some details like local launch timing, which engines we'll get, pricing, etc., that is not currently available. Um, But you'll still have a choice of two or all-wheel drive. Um, It's actually still the same length, although the wheelbase is 60 millimeters longer for better packaging. Um, They've revealed it only as a five-seater. So the current RX has got this goofy looking extended version called the RXL, which was just a reaction to, oh my God, everyone keeps asking us for a a three row crossover. We need to do one quick. What's the easiest way? (laughs) So they stretched an RX and I had, as an experiment, we had one up here in Brisbane. I sat in the back seat and it's just atrocious. Um, So yeah, Lexus is expected to be revealing a new three-row crossover. So we've heard rumors um, about a model called the TX that will that will potentially be coming to fill that gap. Um, but basically, this is a much slicker-looking vehicle. You've got a very similar interior and exterior design language to the, to the NX, which is no bad thing. Um, you've still got... I know a lot of people still have not gotten used to it, but the, the spindle grille at the front looks very different in this application. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about it. It's um, uh, Lexus design language is something where, like BMW, I either love it immediately or I don't like it at first, but it grows on me. Um, I think this is the latter for me. That grill is a bit odd, uh, but it looks like a big upgrade in terms of tech. uh, As we've seen, Lexus is rolling out its new infotainment system, banishing the remote touch trackpad and and updating the graphics, which are like, you know, the, the core infotainment system hasn't really changed much over the past 10 years. So what do you guys think about the new RX? I actually, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's quite evolutionary in some ways. There's definitely some carryover design elements, particularly at the rear, that reminds me very much of the previous model. But then there's also plenty of sort of revolutionary aspects to it. Well, um, my time in the new NX suggests that this larger model will be excellent. Um, it's not just going to be a slightly nicer Kluger like the old one was. Um, the old one felt like a Toyota Kluger that looked a bit like origami and just was a bit nicer inside. But 
didn't really have a whole lot of high-tech stuff going for it. Um, but this new one looks every bit as good as the German competitors, um, particularly when it comes to tech and, and, and drive trains, the plug-in hybrid. The NX plug-in hybrid has got a wait list of over 12 months. So there's definitely buyer demand from Lexus Australia customers for a FEV. And I think in this bigger car, it'll make even more sense. And, you know, most of the competitors in this space don't do regular hybrids. It's really a Lexus and Toyota kind of strength. And for these sorts of vehicles that are going to be sitting in car parks at private at schools and go into the shops and things like that. Having a having a hybrid car actually makes a ton of sense. That's going to be a massive benefit to Lexus. Um, and I mean, it's chalk and cheese inside compared to the old one, isn't it? It's such a nicer environment. I don't know what the practicality and the vision outboard and things is going to be like, but in terms of the way it looks inside, it's it's a massive step up from that brand. But just that bit at the top that's blanked off. I mean, you guys. If you're listening, yeah, check I out the article like on carexpert.com.au. But uh, it's it's a bit of a different interpretation of the spindle grille. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're right, Mike. The, the, the rest of the car, it's very, um, very evolutionary. Um, it does just look a little bit kind of lower and squatter. Like if somebody told me this was the new Lexus RZ, uh, Lexus's similarly sized electric SUV, I'd be like, yeah, it does kind of look a little bit like that. <laughs> And our last story, another SUV has been revealed this week, Moko. Yeah, this is really the uh, premium SUV uh, uh, podcast segment, isn't it? <laughs> um, so Mercedes-Benz, once upon a time, the C-Class was its most important car, but these days it's the GLC, the SUV version of the C-Class. It's a mid-sized SUV, rival to the Audi Q5, BMW X3, et cetera, et cetera. Top-selling car that it makes in Australia, top-selling car in many of its countries around the world. Um, and this is the second-generation version, and it looks like quite a departure, actually. It's... Um, it, it, it's still got that kind of very um, uh, clean and elegant and simple design language that Gordon Wagoner so favours, the design chief of uh, Mercedes-Benz, taking away all lines and sculpting and things like that, very clean. Um, inside, look, Mercedes-Benz, when it comes to interior bling, really knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, looks a lot like the new C-Class on the inside. So you've got the large portrait-oriented centre touchscreen, the new twin-spoke wheel design, um, some really interesting materials. There's one that we've got in the pictures on the site with bright red and black seats and, you know, some interesting kind of um, metallic finishes and things like that. It certainly looks pretty bright and brash inside. Um, but, you know, Mercedes-Benz has really hit, hit it out of the park with the GLC ever since it arrived. It sort of answered a question that a lot of Mercedes-Benz buyers were asking about. This one's got some bigger shoes to fill because Mercedes no longer does a C-Class wagon of any kind in Australia. There was very little demand for either the jacked-up or all-terrain C-Class wagon or just the regular C-Class wagon called the Estate. So this car has to kind of not only replace the old uh, GLC but also has to fill in and, 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 and make up for the loss of those two vehicles as well. Predictably enough, there's some hybridization of the petrol engines. I mean, no one's going to be surprised by that. Go to the website if you want to get all the detail. There's also a FEV um, with more than 100 Ks of electric range, which is pretty amazing. We're getting to the point now with Mercedes-Benz's plug-in hybrids where they actually can, you know, once upon a time, a plug-in hybrid might do 20 or 30 Ks all electric and you'd kind of wonder what the point is. But these new ones with 100 Ks of genuine electric range on the WLTP cycle certainly looks very appealing to me. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I reckon, I mean, look, nobody's going to be surprised by this car. It's pretty much exactly what we all thought it would be, let's be honest. But it is going to be incredibly important. You're going to see these everywhere. The only thing that's going to hold back the GLC is going to be the supplier situation and whether Mercedes-Benz can get its hands on a 
enough. And of course, down the line, you're going to get your GLC 43 and 63 AMG versions. Um, the, I assume the GLC 63 AMG will take the new plug-in hybrid uh, hardcore powertrain from the as-yet-revealed C63. So not a lot of surprises. It's going to launch in the first half of 2023 where the full local gamut of information will be revealed, but certainly something for Ben's fans out there to look forward to. Not just one plug-in hybrid, Mike, but three plug-in hybrids, including a turbo-diesel plug-in hybrid, which is a much less common uh, powertrain configuration. That's the one that I find particularly interesting. However, Mercedes hasn't confirmed which powertrains will be coming here. Uh, If that comes to Australia, I will eat my imaginary hat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I wouldn't expect that to be uh, very high on the priority list for here. But looking at it... um, I, it's very evolutionary as well. It does look a lot like the, the outgoing GLC. They've cleaned up the sides a little bit without cleaning them up too much. So Mercedes has been going for these very sheer um, minimalist uh, side detailing on their vehicles. This has still got a, a little bit in the way of creases, which I think is a good thing because it stops it from looking like an amorphous blob like Mercedes' <laughs> new EQ models, which are there's not a straight line on them. So, look, you're absolutely right. They are going to be everywhere. So, I'm glad that they are not ugly um, because otherwise we get sick of them pretty quickly. I've also got to say, Mercedes-Benz, two of the best features I've driven in a car lately. Um, one of them is uh, the augmented reality satellite navigation where it overlays uh, directional arrows over a live camera feed of what you see around you. So it's an extremely user-friendly interface. There's also an extraordinarily good head-up display in this car. There's a picture of it. Uh, it looks very much like what we've seen in the new S-Class. And of course, Mercedes tends to use the S-Class as this technological halo and it trickles the magic dust down on the less models in its range. So those two things I think are going to be absolute um, game changers in a way for people in this market, but also the rear wheel steering function, which isn't limited to Mercedes-Benz, but it really cuts down that turning circle down under 11 metres. So for inner city buyers, that's going to be a real winning point as well, I think. Yeah. If you would like to read more, hit the news link, carexpert.com.au. Joining us on the podcast today is Scott Colley. How are you, Scott? I'm very good, Will. You look nothing like and sound nothing like Mandy. What's going on? (laughs) Now, I understand that you have been spending a little bit of time with Volkswagen's entry-level model, the Polo. Uh, It's gotten a few changes. Can you tell us what they are? The main change is that the price is higher than it used to be before. Uh, The Polo is Volkswagen's entry-level model in Australia. We don't get the up here. And it's always been a reasonably affordable way into Volkswagen's brand of sort of solidly built, almost luxurious motoring. For 2022, the price now kicks off at $25,250 before on-road costs. But for an automatic model, which is what most people are buying now, it's $28,250. And you can pay upwards of $30,000 for a style, upwards of $32,000 for a style with an options pack and $40,000 or just below $38,750 for a Polo GTI. So prices are up, which is a trend we've seen across this segment of cars. But in the case of the Polo, it is now more expensive than even the most expensive Yaris or um, Mazda 2. And even though it is a similar size to bigger cars like a Corolla or a Mazda 3 in terms of boot space and that sort of thing. It's also well and truly encroaching on their territory when it comes to price. So, how much of a price increase are we looking at here and what has Volkswagen actually done to justify that increase? 
So the price increase is kind of hard to give you because ultimately the model range doesn't perfectly match what we saw before, but you used to be able to get into a mid-spec polo for around the $26,000 mark. I tested a comfort line recently and it had quite a palatable price tag. Um, the trade-off is more equipment. So the polo has always been the most grown-up little car that you can buy and this car is no different. Volkswagen's nicked a whole lot of stuff from its more expensive models and put it into this in the hopes of turning it into the, the premium little hatchback for the people who maybe want all the tech but don't want something as big as a Golf. Um, the highlights are LED headlights across the range. Uh, the base model gets normal projector LEDs, but even they are a huge step forward from what I assume were glowworms or candles uh, <laughs> on the base polo previously. They were some of the worst headlights on a modern car. Um, every model now gets a digital dashboard which is something that none of its rivals can boast. They all get um, a more modern infotainment system with wireless CarPlay. There's things like ambient lighting. And as you move through the range, there's the option for matrix LED headlights. There's a full IQ drive suite of driver assist designed to keep the car in the lane on the highway and maintain a gap to the car in front. Um, you can definitely get this car equipped as maybe you would have expected a Passat five or 10 years ago. And that is quite unique in the segment, even alongside cars like the Corolla and the Serato and the Mazda 3. There's stuff this Polo offers that they just don't. So you've driven the GTI as well, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the standard Polo range, does it justify its price premium over something like a Yaris or a Mazda 2? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. It's it's a really difficult question. And it's one actually one of the commenters has correctly called out in the Polo GTI review. The Polo is absolutely the best light car. If we're talking the way it drives, the way it handles, the way it feels inside, it is comfortably the best of a lot of them. It drives like a bigger car. It's much more grown up and quiet on the highway. Rides on 15-inch wheels as base model or 16-inch in the style, and it rides beautifully over really average roads. We drove this car in Sydney on some roads that have been, I don't know how to politely put this, uh, ruined, decimated by the very wet summer they've had, and this thing just floats along beautifully. Uh, and now with the full suite of driver assists, you can comfortably drive at long distances and not feel blown around or feel at risk of being pushed off the road by a big truck or something like that. And for a long time, that wasn't the case in small cars. Even though a Yaris or a Mazda 2, any of those rivals, are much more grown up than they used to be, none of them feels like a big car in the way the Polo does. So on that front, it absolutely justifies a price premium over the, the its rivals and it it can probably get away with it. I think the issue I have is even though it is definitely the best light car out there, fundamentally and mechanically, it's still the same car as the one that was before it. And it shares the same engine, which is an 85 kilowatt engine mated to a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission in most of the range. The base manual is a five-speed and it's a 70 kilowatt tune, but I would be surprised if more than two or three people bought that. I think it's a price leader that will probably disappear at some point. Um, and although it is a good three-cylinder engine, it's got a really sort of offbeat character about it. It's got heaps of torque and the DSG, once you're up and moving, shifts really quickly. It is ultimately still an entry-level powertrain in the Volkswagen world. When you sit inside the Polo, even though the interior is spacious, it has a lot of tech, it's still a Polo interior and that means there's still plenty of hard plastics around. You're still sitting in cloth seats. There's lots of things that 
although bits and pieces have been dragged up to meet the price point, the fundamentals are still cheaper car fundamentals than than they are more expensive car fundamentals. And that toss-up is kind of hard to reconcile. So you mentioned it's got uh, quite a big car feel, hard plastic interior aside. Could you see buyers potentially looking at this over, say, a Corolla or a Mazda 3? Because I do notice it has a bigger boot than a Corolla hatch. That being said, what doesn't? Yeah, the Corolla hatch, um, we were joking in the Melbourne office this week that the Maruzzo edition, which uh, has no rear seats, is the first modern Corolla with a proper boot. We said that um, on the podcast as well. Oh, there you go. Incredible. <laughs> I'm not recording at the same time as the other guys, so I'm sorry about that crossover, everyone. Um yeah, look, I can see it being cross-shopped against those cars. The Mazda 3 less so. I think that's a more style-oriented car, the hatchback. And I also think when you sit in a Mazda 3, it has a totally different feel to the Polo. Uh, it's a little bit more stylish, a little bit more sort of uh, luxurious even. Even the base model, just the feel of it is different. A Corolla is ultimately, even with the hybrid, not particularly powerful. It's a similar size. So, yeah, I can see it being cross-shop with those cars, but I also think that the Polo name still means small city car to people. And although a Volkswagen dealer, if you were to walk in there and say, I'm looking at a Corolla, can you show me a Golf that's an equivalent price? Even though a dealer might steer them down towards the Polo, I think of the example of my girlfriend who, when I said she should look at a Polo, she goes, no, but they're tiny. And you can say it's got a big boot, you can show her one, but ultimately that perception still exists. And no matter how good the numbers are, you still need to get people over that perception. So, yeah, practically you could absolutely cross-shop them. Whether people are or not, I'm not so sure. So we've talked enough about uh, quote-unquote inexpensive <laughs> entry-level city cars here. Let's <laughs> talk about the GTI. You've, you've got so much more competition for the GTI now. You've got an update of Fiesta ST coming this year. The Hyundai i20N has come out. Does the Polo GTI still stand up in that segment? The Polo GTI, even though it's the lesser known GTI or the, the sort of little brother that lives in the Gulf shadow, is actually one of very few small hot hatches that has run consistently over the last couple of decades. Um, the i20N's new, the Fiesta ST has been around in different forms. We had the Fiesta XR4 as well, but the Polo GTI is a bit of a stalwart in this segment. Price-wise, like the rest of the range, it is more expensive than its competitors. The starting price of 38750 is well and truly above what you'll pay for an i20N, which is 32750 I believe, 32490 excuse me, before on-roads. And a Fiesta ST is 33490 Volkswagen's argument is the Polo GTI is much more grown up than either of those cars. And that's absolutely true. The counter to that is that the Fiesta ST and the i20N are faster and more fun. And that's that's also true. So the Polo still stacks up alongside its rivals. It still offers something quite unique and it it's still a really lovely little car. You get open the door and it's got tartan trimmed seats, which is a GTI staple. It's got some really nice bits of red sort of detailing around it. It's got a unique instrument cluster with different displays. It, it definitely feels like a, a consummate hot hatch and it, it elevates itself above the style quite effectively. Um, and yeah, if we're talking the way it drives, 
the engine in it is a version of the EA Triple Eight two-liter engine, which is in essentially everything Volkswagen and has been since the Mark V. Uh, it's got 147 kilowatts of power and 320 newton meters of torque, which are very healthy outputs for a small car. And it's got a six-speed dual-clutch transmission with a sort of brake-based electrical diff on the front axle. It's not a proper locking differential like you get in an i20N, but it can still nip uh, the inside wheel to try to make the car turn more sharply. If you're talking a car to live with and drive day-to-day, it is absolutely better than an i20N or a Fiesta ST. The DSG means you chuck it in drive and you go. The engine has effortless performance on the highway, but also is quieter, more refined, more settled than either of its rivals. And again, with the full suite of driver assists, you you could be fooled into thinking from some perspectives that it's a Golf. Um, I think where it struggles more is on the fun front. And that's not to say it's not fun because you can have a really good time pushing this car hard on twisty roads. We also drove it at Luddenham Raceway, which is quite a tight little circuit out of Sydney. And it absolutely is a really fun little car. Like any hot little hot hatch, it can be chucked around. It's got plenty of performance, but not so much that you feel like you're going to go flying off into the undergrowth if you get it wrong. Um, and with a good driver behind the wheel, uh, and I'm not talking about me there, they had a, a proper Volkswagen sort of factory race driver there, we'll call it, who took us for some hot laps after we'd have a drive. He was really bullying the car almost and really using big inputs and big lifts off the throttle to make it move around a bit. And there is definitely some playfulness built into the chassis. And even when I was driving, there's a long right-hander at Luddenham. And if you lift, you can just feel the car's nose tighten and the back come round a little bit. So it absolutely has a bit of adjustability built into it. But alongside the Fiesta ST, which we haven't driven the updated one, but the pre-update car is one of the liveliest little hot hatches you'll ever experience. It just wants to play. It wants to wag its tail. And the i20N, which sort of slots somewhere between them, it's got a degree more engagement than the Polo because it's a manual and it it feels a bit more dialed in with the front differential, but it's not quite as far down that path as the Fiesta. Alongside those two, it doesn't quite feel quite as alive. And I suppose which approach you like comes down to preference. For me personally, the i20N balances everything so effectively. As polished as the Polo is, I don't know that it's worth call it $7,000 or if you start putting options on it, eight or $9,000 more than the i20N. Oof, that is a bit of a premium. Do you think more grown up, in quotes, is, is what people in this segment are looking for in a, in a little hot hatch? Uh, again, I know this is a, a cop out of an answer, but I, I think some people are. It's just down to preference. I know that when we talk about performance cars and hot hatches, we have the idea that everything should be a 205 GTI. And there are definitely people who want that, which is why the Fiesta ST exists. But there are also plenty of people out there who have a bit of money to spend on a car. They want the extra performance in a straight line. They want the one that looks the best with the nicest stuff inside. The Polo is more than just that. It's more than just a top spec car with a GTI badge on it. It absolutely is a sporty hot hatch. But it also caters better to people who look and appreciate a bit of extra performance, appreciate some more luxuries, but also driving quickly or, you know, the feeling of liftoff oversteer isn't as high on their list of priorities. So, yeah, for the proper enthusiast, whatever the hell that means, I absolutely agree that the Polo is is not necessarily going to make them as happy, but there's a whole world of people. And it's the same people who you know, love the Golf GTI and, you know, I mean, to extrapolate further, like even maybe a Merck CLA 35, something like that, 
they like a car that gives them a little shove in the back, that makes a nice sound, that feels sporty and can be thrown around a little bit, but ultimately isn't a all out focused on being a sports car that still is also a nice car to drive day to day. And I know that there are some parts of the motoring world that look down their nose at that. I've also been guilty of it at times, but ultimately Volkswagen knows its customers pretty well. And the Polo caters really, really well to the, to play into the stereotype real estate agent or accountant or whatever it is who wants to get in their car every night and feel like it's a bit special, get a bit of a rev from the engine when they turn it on, look at the red paint and the red stitching and, you know, throw it around a little bit when they head off on a weekend away, but also still not compromise on the comfort and the luxury and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it grown up is not always a good thing, but I think in the case of the people who look at a GTI, I think it's still a win for them. And just one final thing I want to touch on with the Polo GTI the Australian market version is a little bit different to the European market, GTI. Is that right? It is. So, last year, actually, the European market GTI, along with some other versions of cars with the same engine in the European market, I think in the Audi range, got a more powerful marginally version of the same engine. Uh, our car has 147 kilowatts. The European car gets 152. Our car gets a six-speed DSG. The European one gets a seven-speed DSG. Is the average owner likely to notice that? Probably not. Um, ultimately, five kilowatts is not going to be the end of the world either way. And the extra gear in the DSG, I'm not quite sure how it's geared, but I would imagine first is slightly shorter and seventh is obviously taller than our sixth. So maybe it gets off the mark a little bit quicker and maybe it's a little bit quieter on the highway. But in real world driving, there's likely to be very little difference. I think the the fact they get a different tune in Europe, there's also emissions-related reasons for it. But it's just disappointing that Australians are paying a premium price for this Polo. Uh, you still have to add options to it, and I don't love that either given where it's priced. But if we're paying top dollar relative to its rivals, it's a bit disappointing that we don't get the top product that is offered overseas. And maybe that won't worry the average buyer, but I do think, yeah, you're asking a lot of money. You need to also offer us the best possible product. And even if it's a small difference, that small difference is is still something that I think is worth calling out. Hmm. Well, you gave the Polo an 8.1 uh, out of 10 and the Polo GTI an 8.2 out of 10. You can read both of those reviews on carexpert.com.au. Scott Colley, thanks for joining. Thanks, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's quite a few engine options to choose from in the 2022 Kia Sorento. And, Moko, you've been driving the hybrid one. Yeah, I've actually driven all of them, believe it or not. Um, shows how much uh, I get around in the latest Kia Sorento models. Um, yeah, so it's got a diesel uh, that is very popular, particularly with the all-wheel drive set that like to go on long country drives. It's got the V6 petrol, which is a bit thirsty. It's got a plug-in hybrid, which is a bit expensive. And the sort of sweet spot that sits in between is this new hybrid model, um, which goes up against uh, the fairly well-known Toyota Kaluga hybrid. With fuel prices being above $2 a litre at the moment, a fuel-sipping hybrid that doesn't break the bank like a plug-in or electric car certainly has a lot going for it. I also love the fact that if you're doing the school run, um, if you're doing you know the run to the shops, if you're doing the sort of suburban driving, a lot of SUV buyers do, 
do. It has the ability to run silently at low speeds, which is, which is an excellent feature as well. Um, the only thing that's really going to impact this vehicle, and, and obviously will expand on the Sorento Hybrid soon, is supply. Um, unfortunately, uh, as we see so often with fuel-efficient vehicles, Australia, because it has no binding, fine-enforced CO2 reduction scheme in place backed by the federal government, car brands just don't send their green vehicles here because there's very little financial incentive for them to do so. So there's only going to be about 20 of these Sorento hybrids a month coming into the country, wow. uh, which is woefully lower than what demand will be. So I kind of felt like I was driving a bit of a rare supercar around, you know, like a Kia Sorento hybrid. Nobody's going to see it. Um, and, and, and the whole time I was driving it, I just thought to myself, damn, this is such a shame because – we already know the new Sorento is a great bit of kit. It, it completely changed the perceptions of Kia in a lot of ways with its ability to just have a really sophisticated upmarket high-tech interior, really edgy angular looks, great packaging and good pricing and locally honed dynamics as well. But it gives it the drivetrain that I think inner city buyers have always needed because a diesel is not particularly refined. It's smelly, it's noisy, it's great for doing long country drives and towing. The V6 is thirsty as hell and it's front-wheel drive only. The plug-in hybrid, as I sort of said before, it's well over $80,000 on the road, so it's not attainable. This hybrid is the sweet spot, $66,750 before on-road costs for front drive, another three grand for the all-wheel drive that I had. Not a twin-motor hybrid all-wheel drive system, just a single electric motor. Um, so it's relatively well-priced. That's about $76,000 on the road, which positions it between the mid-spec Kaluga GXL hybrid and the top-spec Highlander uh, hybrid. So, so in terms of the, the pricing and positioning, it's about bang on. Um, and as I said before, I think in a lot of ways, supplier notwithstanding, it is kind of the sweet spot for the range considering the target buyer for this vehicle. Now, guys, tell me, what do you want to know about it? I want to know how it drives. Yeah, so the Sorento, uh, obviously the one advantage this car has over the FEV is it is a bit lighter. It's got less battery, um, and so that naturally helps the handling. It's also got 19-inch wheels, or as the diesel and petrol in this particular spec grade have got 20s, um, and that helps the ride. So it's not the softest, most supple car in the world. It's not a big floaty armchair on wheels. It is quite firm, but it's also really agile. It's got great handling against cornering forces. It feels a lot smaller and tighter than you'd expect a, a three-row SUV to feel. Um, the hybrid system itself is is, is pretty resolved. Um, so it comprises a 1.6-litre turbo petrol engine uh, with an electric drive motor for a system output of 169 kilowatts and 350 newton metres. Um, and it's also got a, a mechanical all-wheel drive system with a 50-50 locking feature if you want it. You find with these hybrids, you really, they really grow on you. So when you sort of start the car, it's silent. The first 20 or 25 kilometres an hour of rolling speeds, it's also silent because it's relying on the electric motor to do the heavy lifting. That electric motor is powered by a battery that is uh, refilled and replenished constantly by brake energy recuperation. And then once you're rolling, that petrol engine kicks in. And because you're already rolling, you don't get some of that low-speed hesitancy and lag that you get from small turbo engines that don't have electric assistance. Um, the claimed fuel economy is as low as 5.3 out to 5.8 litres per 100 k's. I didn't quite manage that. I was averaging in the mid-sixes. Over the life of the car, it had done a few thousand 
401k is at the hands of many different motoring journalists from many different publications, none of whom are renowned for being particularly efficient drivers. And it was averaging uh, seven litres every hundred, which for a two-ton seven-seat SUV in the real world is actually really good. Um, I did a similar loop in a Kluger hybrid and got about 10% better fuel efficiency, which I think can be explained by the fact that Toyota's just been doing hybrid tech for a lot longer and they've ironed out some of those kinks. But nevertheless, I was really impressed with the way this drove. The way I think about it is in town, it's more efficient than all of the others. On a highway, it's about equally efficient to the diesel. Um, but it's about you know twice as efficient as the, the V6 petrol around town, which is where these vehicles are mostly being driven. Um, and in terms of acceleration, about nine seconds to 100. So it's not rapid. It's not going to pin you back in your chair, but it gets up and boogies just fine. A couple of kids on board, some bags and things going on that family road trip. It's going to lug you along fine. Don't look at the 1.6 litre engine and think it's weedy because just remember, it does have electric assistance that really helps it at the low end. Um, so overall, I think, you know, there's still a little bit of refinements to be found to make it as good as the Toyota hybrid system because there's been multiple generations of that. Um, um, but overall, I was really impressed with the way this thing drove. Is it worth the 4000 or so dollar premium over a GT Line diesel? Yeah, so I think it's really going to depend on the type of buyer. So if I was somebody who lived in the burbs and I used this car like a lot of people do with seven-seat SUVs to do the school run, to go to the shops, to, to drive around town, maybe do the commute to work, I absolutely would recommend it because I think it drives better. It's not necessarily going to pay itself off rapidly because of that price differential, which is more than Toyota commands for its hybrid tech, but the way it performs is excellent. Um, I think if you're towing, I think if you're going on weekend adventures quite regularly out to the snow or whatever it is, the diesel's the one you want because it's, it's really suited to those sorts of tasks. But this really does, I think, broaden the offering of the Sorento because previously my problem with it has been I either have to have a quiet thirsty petrol or a noisy efficient diesel and this really does straddle them so for a lot of buyers I think this is really going to be the sweet spot definitely I think that's that's a really interesting point that you make there because you're you're dead on that the v6 is pretty thirsty it's nice but you can only get it with front wheel drive here um I genuinely like the I'm, I'm not necessarily world's number one fan of diesels but I genuinely like the diesel in the Sorento and in the Santa Fe I think where I don't want to get greedy here because <laughs> Kia Australia has actually managed to secure petrol diesel hybrid and plug-in hybrid powertrains for the local market but where I think the Sorento really misses out is just having a more more efficient petrol offering uh, for people that don't want to step up to a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid. If you go to the US, the US built version of the Sorento is available with a naturally aspirated four-cylinder boiler, but also a turbocharged four-cylinder engine, which I dare say would probably work out to be a little bit more efficient than the V6 and can be had with all-wheel drive. So we may have a wide range of powertrains for the Sorento in Australia, but we don't have all of them. We don't necessarily have what would be one of the better ones in my view. The perils of being a right-hand drive market, uh, buying cars from left-hand drive focused car companies, um, which of course is what the Korean brands all are. Um, it's a miracle this car came here at all, frankly. Yeah. I really, I really also want to call out the interior. So look, that third row, I, I do want to caveat. This is not a full-time seven-seater like a Master CX-9. This is really a five-plus two. You're going to use the middle row regularly and you're going to use a third row mostly for kids 
say you've got two kids and then they've got a couple of little friends who are staying over at a sleepover or you've got to take a, you know, your friend's kids to footy training or whatever it is. You're not going to use them regularly. They stow away flat in the floor and that's the way they'll stay most of the time. But the tech in this interior is great. It's got the twin screen layout, the big uh, touchscreen in the middle and the digital instruments with the head-up display. It all works beautifully. The Korean brands are so far ahead of a lot of the others when it comes to interior tech and the integration thereof. Um, it even has blind spot cameras in the instruments that shows you what's happening behind the car when you indicate, which is fantastic. There is one feature that this loses though, and I had the Sorento GT diesel, GT line diesel, and it's got a feature where you can use the key fob like a giant remote control. So if you park your car in a tight car spot, you know when you, you go shopping, right, and you get back to your car and some numpty has parked their car six inches from your door and so you have to climb in the passenger side and, you know, it, it, it happens all the time, right? Or you say you've got a small garage, you know, and, and, and you're constantly suffering from that. The, the diesel and petrol GT line has a summon function where you can use the key fob to turn the car on remotely and actually tell it to drive towards you, and it works. I've tried it myself. Yep. For some reason, this is the GT line spec. It's a hybrid. It's the same spec as the others. It just doesn't have that feature. Maybe it's semiconductor related. Maybe it's price rated. I'm not sure. But they didn't bring it, which disappoints me. It's is a very it minor the- thing, but... Well, it's such a cool feature. Every time I've had a Hyundai Kia or Genesis product that has had hmm. that, I've showed people and they're like, that's so cool. But is that feature in the plug-in hybrid or is it only no. missing? Okay, no. wow. So for some reason, the hybrids don't get it. The other negative of this car, I have to call out the running costs. So Kia has a seven-year warranty and it was the first brand to do so. So massive tick to Kia for that. But its service prices are pretty high. The first seven services, 10,000K intervals, which is way too short uh, for starters. But then 323 for the first visit, that's all right. 663, 481, 1010, 364, 897, and 655. A Kluger is like 250 bucks every time you visit, and it's every 12 months. Toyota just knows how to make servicing cheap. I do think somebody who buys a, a Sorento hybrid, they're obviously motivated by saving some dollars, right? Particularly in the fuel bills. But then you turn around and your service costs are, are pretty high, kind of undermines the benefit of, of getting good fuel economy there. So, Kia, I think, really needs to sort of work on ways to reduce the pricing of its of its factory servicing as well. Definitely. Before we wrap up, this caught my eye, and I have to I have to ask you. Uh, it, it's got a built in voice memo recorder. That's oh, right. Yeah, it's got so, sounds of nature as well. Yeah. So there's really? a so so we touched on this infotainment system before, which is so good. The maps are beautiful. Everything's fast. It's rapid. It's sexy. It, it's it's a great system. It's like an iPad in your car, but it's got a couple of weird menus. One is sounds of nature, so you can have a screen with a fireplace and it pipes the sound of wood burning through the interior or the sound of a forest and the ambient lighting matches it. And you know what? That's kind of fun, right? I remember my my fiance and I, it were on a rainy cold night, we, we, we got some takeaway and we sat in the back with the sound of a wood fire. You know, what's not to like about that? That's kind of fun. But there's also a function called the voice memo recorder, which... I don't know, like I, I kind of had to call out in the review, like this infotainment system's cool, but there's some pretty weird things in there, like a, a voice memo recorder. I don't I don't really know who the hell's taking voice memos in their car when they're driving. You know, I think that's kind of what your phone is for, I would have thought, just quietly. But, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe somebody listening is yelling at the uh, at the radio as they speak because they use it all the time. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's so funny because every time I'm in a Hyundai or Kia or Genesis and I see that function, I mean, I obviously take voice memos when I'm driving around reviewing cars, but I, 
I would just use my phone for that. I would never use because mm. then I would have to like kind of record the memo back onto my phone or something. Like you can't just yeah. drop it off. So it's it's a strange feature. But hey, it's better to have a bunch of strange features you don't need than be missing features that you do want. And the technology in in this car compared to a Kluger, like we're still waiting for the Kluger to get Toyota's new infotainment system, which yeah. should narrow the gap a little bit. But the current Kluger infotainment system. One, the screen is only eight inches. I, I, yeah, I know back in the day that would have been a good size, but now not so much in this segment. But two, it's just it's so much older and less nice. <laughs> it is, and you know, I just I have to touch back on that one thing though, which is supply. It's so frustrating to me that you know fuel prices are at record levels. Car manufacturers have got these fantastic fuel saving options, but supply is so tight because of the global situation that we're going through at the moment that, you know what, pretty much motoring journos and Kia staff are going to be the only people driving this thing for a while because there's just so few of them on the ground, which is incredibly frustrating. It's not necessarily Kia's fault. This is the world we live in, but you know what, really, really frustrating. Look at this, Mike. You're getting all the rare cars. You go from reviewing a Maserati MC20 to a Kia Sorento hybrid. That's the one, mate. I only I pull rank. I only take the good stuff, the rare stuff, you know? <laughs> well, Mike, you've given it a 8.1 car expert rating. The review is live now. All right. As always, if you have any feedback for us or any questions, you can get in touch with us, podcast at carexpert.com.au. Hey, Will, what cars can we look forward to coming up next week? Well, we've got a bit of a a varied uh, collection of vehicles across three cities next week. Um, So down in Melbourne, um, y'all have got a Mercedes-Benz C300 and the new BMW i4. Um, we've also got a few Audis, so an e-tron S Sportback, a Q3 35 TFSI, oh, a Q7 55 TFSI S-Line, and a Q5 Sportback 45 TFSI. It's yeah, so we, we had a... Um we were missing a few Audis that we hadn't really had a chance to to get get our sort of um, our hands on, and uh, you know they kind of all came in a in a, in a batch. <laughs> so you know we sort of went, well, damn, that's a lot. But you know what, the <laughs> we'll pe- pe- people want to know what we think about all these different Audis, so we, it doesn't mean we're going to publish them all at the same time. That we'll um, we'll definitely get them at the same time. <laughs> I think that'll be the first time we'll have an Etron S following the launch that I went to for that. So that'll be good for somebody to get behind the wheel that for a week uh, but it's not just luxury cars in melbourne uh there is also a subaru wx gt sports wagon and a hyundai i30 sedan n um on that note i also yes. want to just call out so we actually yes you are right we've got the wrx wagon but we've also had the rex sedan manual and so scott collie and i did a comparison recently between the new wrx manual and the i30n manual there was only a couple of hundred bucks dividing them two manual performance hot sedans keep your eye out for it very soon yes i'm very excited to read that one because <laughs> it's been a bit of a wrx extravaganza. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh yes <laughs> Just waiting for the chance to use that because um, <laughs> we've had um, four WRXs down in Melbourne and four up here in Brisbane that we're just kind of making our way through. So I'm currently in the TS sports wagon. I'm swapping into a TS sedan um, and then I'll have a GT sports wagon after that. Um, but 
Sydney also has some interesting stuff as well. So another i30N, but it's the Fastback Limited Edition. Um, so the final bow for that body style in Australia, at least. Um, Tony will be behind the wheel of a Porsche Taycan 4S Cross Turismo. Oh, so boy. I, We're going to hear about that for weeks, oh, aren't we? Yeah, we'll, we'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> Mate, you wouldn't buy anything else. It's a performance <laughs> bargain. <laughs> Not bad. Oh, Not bad. that was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, look, it's pretty easy to do an impression of Crawl. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something all interesting as well in Sydney, a Renault Megane RS Trophy. Um, so I don't think we've had a review on a Megane for a little while. And it's especially interesting because Renault has increased the prices of that particular model by quite a bit. But, you know, Australians do love hot hatches um, and... You know, now the Megane is sold only as a hot RS trophy in Australia. Oh, something also we, uh, we I don't know if we mentioned earlier in the show um, when we were talking about EVs coming up, uh, the Megane E-Tech Electric has been uh, mm. confirmed for Australia. I believe, Mikey wrote, it's coming late next year. That's right. So the Megane badge lives on, but it now adorns an electric crossover SUV. And if that isn't a sign of the times, I don't know what is. Mm. The good thing is it doesn't look too SUV. It kind of does just look a little bit like a hatchback to me, but it's it's unrelated to the existing Megane. The existing Megane is is sticking around for, for the time being, uh, but we'll be very excited to get behind the wheel of that. But that's not a next week thing. That'll be a next year thing. So that's uh, the garages in Brisbane City and Melbourne. And that's a wrap for us this week. William Stopford and Mike Costello, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, guys.